Hi, Habibis. I just wanted to let you all know that Habibti Please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. This network is very important to me and others as a group of progressive voices creating independent media that challenges predominant narratives told in right-wing and liberal media. I want to recommend some shows I personally enjoy that are part of the Harbinger Media Network, such as Rob Rousseau's 49th Parahal, as well as the Indigenous storytelling series Feel Rouge, which features stories from Indigenous communities in the far north of Quebec. Harbinger is listener supported. You can get subscriber specific content when you head over to harbingermedianetwork.com and subscribe. Happy International Women's Day. This is a really special release for us. Uh, We really wanted to do something around International Women's Day and kind of remember the socialist origins of International Women's Day. But Ryan and I are first going to think a little bit back to where we were um, on International Women's Day last year. We were at the same place. Where were we, Ryan? Yeah, and by chance, too, we were both at Angela Davis's talk at the University of Toronto where she was speaking um, for International Women's Day. It was also her birthday. And it was also an event as part of Israeli Apartheid Week. And she was speaking about um, Palestinian struggles, uh, abolition struggles, and women's struggles as well. And some big takeaways that day beyond the the energy in the room being great up until um, the... <laughs> the end where, yeah, we had some hecklers at the end. Yeah, um, and they followed, tried to follow oh Ryan. Gosh. Yes, they yeah, did. that was a scary Oh day. my gosh, I was hiding. Uh, that was really scary. JDL, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, it was one of the last big campus events and Toronto kind of uh, social justice left type of events that occurred before lockdowns happened. So mm-hmm. um, I think thinking back to what that day was and like the reminder of it was packed, there were waitlists and there is a thirst and a desire and a hunger for that type of thinking in this city. Yeah, for sure. Um, it was really nice. It was really nice to see people from so many different parts of my life at the event actually yeah, uh, come too. together and and be there to to learn and and grow yeah and um Ryan and I will be linking a few international women's day posters in these show notes so please check them out there's some retro posters but um for example like 1991 you have a poster that says women say stop the racist war from oka to the gulf And so we have solidarity with the Oka crisis, with the Gulf War that was occurring, and um, the demands are self-determination for Aboriginal people, Palestinians, uh, Black people in South Africa, racism kills, confront it and oppose it, and violence, we demand social justice now. So remembering that you can't divorce uh, International Women's Day from these types of demands, and even in Angela Davis's talk, like how women play a role in the movement and the struggle. And we see it in the farmers protests in India right now. And we see it all the time. And uh, International Women's Day has maybe been girl bossed up a little bit Mm -hmm. and removed from that. But I think it's a good reminder to remember. So, Ryan, like what's what's your introduction or kind of history of like, what's your favorite fact about the origins of International Women's Day? Yeah, well, I mean, just first kind of lamenting what International Women's Day is veering to become the whole girl boss idea is just 
so disconnected from the mm-hmm. history and the origins of International Women's Day, um, which I believe was was once called International Working Women's Day. Um, and it has really its origins in the socialist movement. You know, we have one of the first international women's congresses um, happening in the early 1900s on the tales of the Russian Revolution, mm-hmm. um, where where women in Tsarist Russia were organizing in secret mm. um, and and that was celebrated. Um, we also have International Women's Day in the U.S. The first um, year being 1914, um, I believe, or 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 around 1910. So in the early 19, the, the early 1910s um, and and there you have the Socialist Party of America organizing the first International Women's Day in New York City. Um, and there you have women from all over the world coming to celebrate a socialist struggle and try and make advances in socialism. And ever since, International Women's Day celebrations have been held on March 8th in countries across the globe, which is a good reminder to us all of the revolutionary potential of working women. And I'm so happy you talked about how it used to be more widely known, or perhaps the original understandings of it was working International Women's Day. And it's so interesting that the way even during this lockdown, work has been described and essential work. And now we have this idea of like hero pay that's popping up with the migrant workers, where it's like, we'll top you up like an extra $2 an hour or like an extra 200 a month. And then we'll call you heroes and call it hero pay, which is like, kind of condescending and kind of yeah. weird when you could just be like, no, these are like working people and like workers should be paid fairly and, and women and uh, women's suffrage, like women carry the brunt of like, for example, um, minimum wage work. And that's why when people are like, oh, if we raise the minimum wage to like $15, which is still too low, people are like, oh, well, um, then the the teenagers at McDonald's and Walmart are going to get that. But it's been proven that like who benefits the most are moms who hold families together and working women. And the majority of them are actually um, black and brown. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then bringing that to our guest today, mm-hmm. um, we will be having Mumilak Kaka coming and speaking to us. Um, and she really came to prominence several years ago when she spoke at an International Women's Day event um, in Parliament. And she brought attention to the crises that are facing her people in the North, in Nunavut and in all the areas that um, Inuit people live, including suicide crises, housing crises, all of which are connected to the history of colonialism and residential schools. And so when we think about, you know, leaders, women leaders who come in and really are champions for their communities, um, I'm really inspired by our guest today. And um, it was just an absolute like pleasure and honor to speak to her. I say that about every guest, but this was a particular type of experience. Um, Even myself as an interviewer, I've been doing long form interviewing since 2014. um, And I've done a bunch, uh, not only in Canada, but in Morocco as well. And sometimes there's just stories and narratives and questions that stick with you. And I think this is one that I'm always going to think about. Um, And we had a few things we thought about 
while, while we were interviewing and before and after, but one of them is how the landscape of Canadian uh, media and podcasting and writing is so Ontario centric. And we forget about a lot of kind of the struggles in, in the North, but also just struggles of people who don't live in Ontario um, or Quebec or British Columbia or Alberta. Yeah. Yeah. And those provinces are really just at the forefront. But when we think about what the identity of this country is, what the social fabric of this country is, the North contributes so much and it's just so ignored. Every few years, a viral post will go around social media where somebody has taken a photo of the price of food in in Nunavut or or even in the Northwest Territories. And they'll see how it costs $24 for a 12 pack of water. Yeah. Or or the big one is like orange juice. Yeah. People love to take pictures of orange juice and be like, what is this? Yeah. And it'll be it'll be like $30, $40 for a bottle of orange juice. And um, meat and vegetables will are just astronomically expensive. And so you, you actually can't live there and buy food at the grocery store, which is another reason why preserving the way of life up there is so critical and how climate change and colonialism and drilling and racism really are, are threatening uh, the way of life there and, and people are going, people are suffering and people will continue suffering um, if we don't turn our minds to, to what's happening there. It's such a small population, yeah. right? When we think of Nunavut, the largest electoral riding in the world, but one of the really quite a small population, I think under, under 50K. Yeah. And the difficulties of, for Momilak about, about like, how do you serve a population that's so dispersed and so uncared for by the larger general public? Um, there's not going to be the same donors giving to her campaign as they would to like a Toronto Center um, NDP person who's running, even though that person has more resources, can walk throughout their whole constituency. Factors like that that don't get kind of added in and like the difference between like equitably supporting her as a person in parliament who needs more resources, in my opinion, to be able to navigate that type of constituency. Um, but also like thinking about some points that she brought up and also points about like Canadian history that we don't really learn. So I did go to high school here um, and I don't remember learning about um, sled dogs being killed by the Canadian government. Yeah. Um, which was yeah. very intentional and something yeah. she brings up often in interviews and has brought up in parliament as part of the colonial legacy um, that haunts that area that the sled dogs were killed. Yeah. And in my international law classes, actually, actually, we've learned about how the Canadian government transported Inuit people against their will to northern remote areas um, so that they could stake their claim to the land there by saying, look, our population lives here. And really, people were just, it, it just decimated their populations. And the Canadian government apologized for that particular action several years ago. But mm. you just see the way that people are treated as disposable or tools to advance a country's interest um, without ever paying attention to their actual needs. 
Yeah. And, and like for people who like aren't making the connections, it's not just killing sled dogs is sad because they're dogs. Yeah. It was known that the RCMP did this as part of a government plan to force Inuit to abandon their traditional camps and move into Western style communities. And it yeah. also, it also just like hurts you as a person when people start to kill your culture. Yeah. And like the history of the RCMP in the region, um, and the denial the Canadian government had about this incident for so long, up until I think 2019. And they're still kind of denying it. Yeah. Also, uh, a denial of the way residential and day schools impacted Inuit people. You know, we, we are making advances, not enough, but at least acknowledgement of, of truth and reconciliation of residential schools throughout the provinces, but in the territories, especially in, in Nunavut. I think people really don't understand that that was happening at that scale as well there. And it has lasting impacts that we see today, including very, very serious mental health crises, a suicide crises. And we need to, I think, pay attention and respect and value life there a lot more um, and lend our support if we actually want to see things change. And um, this was kind of a, this was an episode that obviously Ryan and I are very like honored to have done and we're very proud of. And, um, the, but there, there is some content that might um, upset some people at points thinking more deeply about mental health, I would say, yeah. or thinking about um, suicide rates. So uh, that's a fair warning I would give to anybody listening uh, to this episode. And beyond that, um, thinking about the importance of having people who will do something like a housing tour, um, like Mumilak did, and then seeing those conditions and like continuing to fight instead of so many members of parliament before, there's no way they can feign an ignorance about what the housing conditions are there. Justin Trudeau has been to multiple, multiple, um, indigenous housing kind of different housing uh situations he's he's done tours too but they've yeah. never impacted him the same way and it's been rather disingenuous the kind of responses not only from him from multiple members of parliament i would say part of all three parties who have seen the housing conditions we've long known the housing conditions but Mumilak, it obviously grinded her down but also she posted videos of mold on ceilings and yeah. It's like, okay, how are you supposed to stay at home during a pandemic when you have so many people living in one small space, but there's also mold all over your ceilings consuming yeah. you and like consuming your health. Yeah. Which is why it's so dangerous. The idea of COVID being there. One, one case there is, is too many anywhere, but it's deadly in the North. Um, and so we really need to take seriously the health conditions and the housing conditions there. We want to prevent crises from getting worse. Yeah. And with that, um, this year's theme for International Women's Day is women in leadership achieving an equal future in a COVID-19 world. I think this episode and Mumilak's speech that we referenced that we're going to play um, that she gave in 2008 show that she's she's fighting in, for an equal future before COVID-19 and during COVID-19 and will after um, COVID-19 if it ever ends. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, on to the show. Thanks for listening. Happy International Women's Day. The Honorable Member for Nunavut. Oh. 
Ratna, Madam Speaker. Um, first off, I'd like to start with it's an honor to be here to advocate for people in my territory. Um, as an Inuk who has grown up in Nunavut, suicide is no stranger to myself and those in my territory. We all know it way too well. We are put into and now live in foreign systems that do not work for us. We support, we need support and allies to assist us, work with us, and most importantly, to listen to us. We cannot face this problem alone like we have been for so long. There are many factors that contribute into suicide, lack of or poor healthcare, housing, living costs, and transportation. Many live in poverty. Poverty and health, uh, mental health care is almost non-existent. We are often left on the back burner, ignored or forgotten. Nunavut have been asked to make a plan to help ourselves in these systems we do not understand. All we are asking for is our basic human rights. Where is this support? from leaders with power and ability to make change. Where are our non-Indigenous allies? Thank you, Madam Speaker. Hi, everyone. This week, we're very honored to be joined by Mumi Lak. Uh, before her election to Parliament, she was a facilitator, public speaker, and volunteer, best known for a speech she made in the House of Commons on International Women's Day, which you just heard play before this uh, episode, and elected in 2019. At the age of 25, she was the youngest uh, elected member of Parliament, and Ryan and I are super honored to be sitting down with her today for this interview um, to talk about her writing and some issues in Canadian politics that we've been witnessing as well down here in the South. Yeah. And before we get into it, you know, how, how are you? How is, um, what's it like, um, you know, where you are and, and how are you doing generally? Great. Thanks so much for having me and for giving me the time and space to have these discussions. I think just for clarity, I am I am the youngest to be elected in the territory. I'm not the youngest MP. Uh, that is Eric Malello, I believe, a conservative member of parliament out west who is 21 or 22 years old, who I have yet to uh, approach and ask, how many times do you get asked what it's like as a man to be the youngest member of parliament? Because that was very much a title that people kind of put on my face and I was like, whoa, 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 there's somebody way younger than me even uh, down on the other side of the country. And I think that that has a lot to do with me being a female and him being a male. I yeah. think that's, um, people think it's even more exceptional because we have different body parts that for some reason we can't uh, or shouldn't uh, succeed in these kinds of positions. So I think that that's something that's still interesting, you know, having that conversation here. Well, a year into my job and going through all the crazy amount of things that I have, I used to be really uh, offended when people kind of gave the notion that I had a lot to learn and I had a lot to figure out as if uh, any other member of parliament, whether they were 40, 60, white, brown man, woman, that we weren't, you know, that because I was a younger indigenous woman, uh, that for some reason I had a lot to learn. I had a lot to do and it was going to be easier for other people, which I'm, I'm phenomenal at my job. Yeah. I'm a really, really good member of parliament. And mm -hmm. I think that elected positions like that need to be good at their job and should be good. Um, 
So I, I think it's it's been a really interesting uh, year and a bit in a number of ways. Uh, I think the biggest thing that has been a difference lately is basically coming back. I've found a place where I can start preaching the same way AOC does in that clear, uh, thoughtful, well laid out, full picture idea of this is what's been happening. Um, so I think that that's something that has been very different for me uh, coming back this time around for sure. And I appreciate you saying that because this is like, you're pointing out something that frustrates me too, but I did it here where um, I'm the youngest in some spaces and people say it and I view it as like, oh yeah, because despite all of these factors that people are like put on me, I think it's something, but um, yeah, all of the media briefings about you mentioned that. And that's why I pulled that. And I think it's great that you push back in that way. Cause I need to remember to push back too when people do that. And I do it all the time. I've called out people in meetings with President Koetek. Uh, uh, she uh, often gets referred to as Aluki. And then oftentimes they'll say President Obed for Natan Obed, a man, mm. uh, both in similar positions. But I've done that for sure. I've said, excuse me, you guys need to call her president because that's what you're calling Natan. And then I've turned around and I've been like, Aluki, I mean president quote up like I've done it too yeah. so I think it's it's one thing to talk about it but it's also self-check-in is so critical I think right so can you tell us a bit about your writing for our listeners um, and just speak about what's unique and special about Nunavut and can you tell us a bit about the history of the region and also the formation of the territory yeah, so as a member of parliament, uh, there are 338 electoral seats that go by population throughout the country. So I, uh, Nunavut having a population of about 40,000 people, uh, covering the biggest electoral riding in the world, not just in Canada, has its many unique challenges. And people often don't think about uh, my riding, say, compared to downtown Toronto or the Brandon area, Ontario, uh, or out PEI or BC, uh, people I don't think, don't think about even just the vastness of, of what I cover. Uh, I cover three time zones, I cover three regions. Each region deals with a different Southern healthcare system. Uh, so the Khatamut region interacts with Edmonton, Alberta. The Kivalak interacts with Manitoba and the Khatamut interacts with Ontario primarily. Uh, we follow the Alberta education system. So there's just lots of uh, systems, policies and procedure that aren't Nunavut specific and that were grabbed from other areas of the country and just basically kind of dumped uh, in the territory. That can be a little bit more confusing and take some more time to get into, but I think some very striking differences is the fact that we don't have trees uh, because we do have permafrost. We don't have trees and people I think have a hard time, maybe not so much out West where there is the, the prairie lands, but I think people have a weird time sometimes thinking about waking up and not seeing that every day when um, you get out. And that is our norm. Our norm is being able to see for thousands of kilometers sometimes depending on where you are our norm is having trucked in water and sewage and if you have a five-day blizzard you learn how to ration from you know you're very young uh, our norm is having to leave communities most often to have a child our health resources are so scarce that my hometown you leave four weeks before your expected due date to go to Winnipeg and you wait there until you have your baby so if you do want to have a big family could you imagine having to 
put everything on pause in COVID, but also just that that's regardless something that you're going to face. You have to have your child outside of the territory and you often uh, you need to be approved an escort. There's all these different kinds of things that are just our norms that people don't think about in the South often. Um, another one is our planes. Our, it's our lifeline. It's our ambulances. It's our highway. It's our essential service. It's we need it in order to for our communities to function. Uh, so again, you have a five day blizzard. You're not getting support applies for X amount of time. Um, there's such a lack of uh, s- uh, community sustainability in terms of local economic development and the opportunities for that. The federal government has done a really, 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 really good job at making it extremely difficult for Nunavumu and Northerners to exceed and have that right to self-determination for all of the things I just mentioned. And There's a lot of those things that tie into one another that people simply don't realize. And when we do see these devastating numbers of violence, abuse and death is where we see a lack of quality of life. So what we actually are seeing when we're talking about the issues in the territory and in the north is we're talking about a lack of basic human right present. We're talking about a lack of a quality of life because that's most often where we see violence and death, where we see turmoil is where we see people struggling with the basics, food, shelter and water. So I, I think in terms of my riding in the territory, it is, it's really unique and you've already touched on how the media you know doesn't do a good job at covering things and who funds the media who funds our primary local media the feds mm-hmm. how great does everything work out you know I've been saying not having these conversations and not creating education and awareness around the realities for the north and around Canadian history this isn't Inuk history, this isn't Inuit history, this is Canadian history, this is Canadian current and past, Um, and who it benefits to not discuss these things and not educate on these things is the federal government, because it would cost them a lot of money to provide basic human rights to the people that they should be, which is every Canadian. So I think uh, a big thing is money, but a, a big another big one is just how deep and complex all of these things go. And um, a lot of our listeners are from, I would say, Ontario and British Columbia. Um, we we get some a lot of American listeners as well. And Canada is always painted as this like, you know, very nice, better than America place. But people don't know about things like the food prices in the north, the fact that everything has to be flown in and and housing. And could you give us kind of more insight into that? Because of People just, I don't know what it is about the Trudeau senior multiculturalism policy and like all the rose tinted glasses with it, but people just think Canada's so great to everyone. Um, but there's clearly like a housing crisis, water crises throughout uh, Canada for Indigenous people and, and food. And the price of food um, is absurd whenever like the news one time will cover something and be like, look at how much milk costs here. Yeah. But that's like once every four years. Yeah, every four years, like like a, a new story will break and then everyone forgets about it again. Yeah, for sure. I think that I don't like ever making comparisons, but I think there's lots of relations that we can already grab from everywhere throughout the world that we can see this evolution of policy and procedure on a specific group of people and how it can really 
demolish that way of living and that sense of community and pride. I think of uh, on Netflix, the 13th Amendment does a really, really good job at explaining that history and that policy and law and how these different leaders made decisions so that Black people in turn were suffering at really gross rates in a way that makes it seem like it's their fault. And to me, that's the what I call the beauty of colonization. The way it's working in its most extreme well form is you don't know it's there. I didn't know growing up for my first 20 years that it didn't make sense not learning my history. It didn't make sense not understanding the turmoil all around me. And that's just when colonization is working so well from institutions and positions of power, these external forces don't even have to interact with us. And we then see this turmoil created and it stays in there. So I like to relate what's happened for Inuit and for Indigenous peoples to the 13th Amendment, because what that movie does uh, or what that documentary does rather is it really shows in a very clear way this is how a policy a law can affect a group of people and here's how you know up until that point I never understood you know how those those black uh, like black people make jokes all the time about not having a dad or you know that's not an uncommon joke but I didn't understand how much black men were forced into these positions that would lead them into jail and then the three strike rule and how much that like I didn't understand that and what that history looks like and how that devastates not just families but communities and how we saw those things happen and unfold from you know we look at the laws that they put in for coke and cocaine. It's the same drug. It's harsher sentencing, though. Uh, I think of Black Lives Matter, all the movements we've been seeing globally, and we've seen laws change globally. So I, I think about that in relation to what that history looks like between the federal institution, the RCMP, uh, here in Canada and Indigenous peoples. Because first off, it is that lack of acknowledgement and awareness of how a system has developed to oppress a group of people and does it in a way that's again going back to the beauty of not even understanding or fully being aware of what's happening and why um so kind of taking a few steps back I guess people don't realize how fresh it is uh, my dad was born out on the land. My grandparents, our grandparents were born on the land. Our parents most often were forced into communities, went through residential school, day school, hostels, whatever the word, what, like, give a look. Uh, day school, the federal government refuses to recognize it as a residential school, even though that's what it was. Forced relocation, uh, there, during the, tuberculosis epidemic they had the same ships that forcibly relocated Inuit from northern Quebec or Nunavik up to the high Arctic those same ships took Inuit from communities that they were forcibly relocated into uh, and taken away for TB treatment there were often times where a helicopter would scout the community surrounding area before to look for people hiding because people knew once they were taken away for TB uh, the average time that an Inuk spent away from their home was 15 months. If 
they came back and we have tons and tons of stories of like the word Eskimo written on a grave, like an unnamed Inuk. And that's what I mean when the beauty of colonization is you don't realize you're in it because all these circumstances that have created this turmoil for Inuit, instead now what we spend a lot of time doing is expressing frustration and stress to each other. So we start having arguments about who should be doing what, even over the word Eskimo was such a huge thing. And that's how well colonization is, has been working, that Inuit themselves are turning against one another, when the reality is, is that we should all be mad at the people not fulfilling their obligation, which is the federal institution. So I don't want to dive into anything current, because there is such, like, just in terms of t- to talk to this, just because there is about 40, 50 years of extremely pack-a-punch things that have happened and have resulted in these numbers, like nine times the suicide rate, uh, three times the violence against women in the North, uh, 14.35 times death by RCMP in Nunavut compared to Ontario. Uh, So all these devastating numbers that we see, it's this couple decades of really, really pack-a-punch, intense, uh, systemic ways that the federal institution and other institutions like the RCMP have found ways to continue to oppress Inuit. And realistically, I think a lot of that comes down to money. It would cost a lot to to house, provide those uh, adequate living costs, provide clean drinking water for each community, cost the federal government a lot of money. And I think that's mostly what it comes down to is our lives aren't worth the dollar amount. And you've spoken about a lot of the history and the laws that have um, that have impacted the community. And one of the other effects of the laws is climate change, which has unique impacts in the north. And so can you speak to some of the impacts of climate change? For sure. And I also want to try to see if I can give you an example of like this, how a system doesn't work and what that means in the north. So I want to talk a bit about food. So, for example, primarily our communities in Nunavut uh, use uh, Northern or Northmart. A company, let me, let me make this really clear, a company who also owns 64 Giant Tiger locations, who is the chairperson of Giant Tiger, a conservative member of parliament, Scott Reed. How? Giant Tiger also is a 13 point, I believe, two, at least a 13 billion dollar a year asset corporation. So don't tell me we can't lower food prices in the north when you guys own 64 Giant Tiger locations. And so every time I saw it, I see one on the highway now. I'm just like, oh, I hope you guys are bringing affordable food up to like Yellowknife and figuring out how to make highways. Anyways, so this North Mart, this this. uh Oh my gosh, it's slipping me right now. I talk about it all the time. Nutrition North program. The Nutrition North program. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Oh my goodness. So this was put into play by the conservatives at the time here, like eight, seven or eight years ago or something like that. So this, I assume, is how Scott Reed was able to... And it, it and it says something about family ties, but I don't know. The ethics, House of Commons ethics has passed it, and I don't know how that happens. Anyways, okay, so this program was created by a conservative 
government. And in this program, you can access funding to create and supply country food. But the qualifications for that list is like so long. There is no way a local hunter or a group of local hunters can fulfill their standards in the clean, uh, cleaning and, you know, just like the processing part of all the food. Mm -hmm. Impossible for anyone to actually be able to do that unless, yes, you have a giant tiger company connection where you can do those things and pull those strings so the idea yes that's great an inu can go catch their food be able to apply for this funding but then that's usually where it stops and you're hitting your head against a brick wall over and over and over again so instead of being able to now supply and provide food for your community and your family you're just kind of stuck at square one again and the only people that are benefiting are scott reed or whoever connections he has giant tiger and northmart what about the people on the ground that actually need the help so that's what i mean when i say it has been created and it's just it's years of this evolution of who had what connections and said yes or slipped a go ahead to certain people at the time. Uh, and I think we're going to talk about Bath and Lamb, but, you know, we're seeing similar things with those guys up there. Who is giving you a go ahead? Who is giving you a yes? Who is implying that this is going to be OK, even though it's clearly not? So those kinds of things, um, we just constantly see it nearly impossible for a northerner or an Inuk, quite frankly, but really easy for these big corporations and these people with these deep pockets. And that doesn't make sense. Every study I have read evaluating the Nutrition North program has said that it's not having the impact that it's supposed to. And I'm, I think one of those is the government's own study. Um, and so it's just really ridiculous that they're sticking to this um, despite that. And you, you brought it up, so so let's talk about it. But uh, Nunavut hunters were recently in the news for creating a blockade to protest a new mine in Mary River. And as of February 14th, um, the company Bath & Land Iron Mines Corporation started enforcing an injunction against the protesters. And we have not seen this in the news at all. So can you please talk to us about some of the complexities around the project and how the community feels about it and what the impacts of the project um, would be in the region? Totally. So there are a number of things that were happening. And I'm just making a few notes because I want this to be super clear because it hasn't been. Yeah. And here we go again with who funds our local news, the government, the federal government does. Why do we never see Nunatsiak and CBC News North on these things? Uh, and I, I could be wrong. I think CBC actually has some people there, but we don't ever see it to the capacity that we should. You know, we saw things like uh, Wet Sweatin' and we saw Mi'kmaq Territory and those kinds of things can happen down south because people can get there. No one's going to spend thousands of dollars and it's not like you can in COVID, which Let's note, let's note the perfect timing of all of this too. Let's note how conveniently it's, this is going to work out for not being able to meet in person, not being able to do virtual things because of that lack of connectivity. So let's just note the perfect circumstances for all of this to be happening too. So there were a number of things that happened and a number of things that people weren't super clear on. 
So there were a group of community members that had showed up to the Baffinland airstrip last Thursday. So these group of community members were not associated with anyone. They were a group of concerned concern community citizens that just wanted to have their voice heard. It was reported that different group had been responsible, which was not true. Although there is a group that wants to be formally recognized under the Nunavut Dungavik Incorporated Organization. So they want to be recognized as a territorial Inuit organization that represents a group of seven communities in the North Baffin. So that's one formal organization. Like they want to be recognized as a formal organization rather. But these individuals, these community members that were on the airstrip, they at the time were not associated, uh, have since decided to call themselves Nuluyat and are in the process of meeting with Nunavut Dungavik Incorporated, the Territorial Inuit Organization, and Kaitani Inuit Association, the regional Inuit organization there. So those kinds of things are happening right now. When the group of concerned community members showed up, they said that they will not they will not not stop anything essential they would not stop any medical supplies in or out and they would not stop uh, the the crew currently on site from leaving what we're unsure of is how baffinland communicated what the hunters were saying to them to their employees uh, what it seems to be is that baffinland decided to halt all operation, even though they didn't need to, even though that was not the intent of the hunters at all. All that they wanted to do was have their voices heard, and they they felt that they had to take these measures to do it. Uh, the mining had stopped operation anyway, from what we can see, had told their employees that the community members were refusing to let them leave the mine site, which wasn't true. The, the, the community members, these individuals, these concerned individuals never had any intention of not letting anyone leave. Anyone that wanted a flight out could get on a flight. It was Baffinland that was halting it. Um, so what we're seeing right now happening is exactly what we see throughout the country. This huge corporation. And while we start doing more and more digging, have spent millions of unapproved dollars millions in no one has given them the go-ahead to say yes it's okay to expand and go into these next phases but they have already invested and put in all that money there so that's what like who's giving you the nod who's giving you the slip and go ahead so what the issue is right now is what happens for a mining company is they go through a bunch of hearings with a number of named parties. So for Baffinland, there's 23 parties. And that's a lot of people to interact with. You know, you need to have a set time for questions, concerns, back and forth. And it seems that that hasn't been happening. Who does that is the Nunavut Impact Re Review Board or NERB. Who funds that? Who funds it? The Liberal government. Who keeps saying there is a policy and process that we follow? The Liberal government. So I've been saying to Minister Vandell, if your process is flawed, your decision is flawed, you have the power and ability to change that. Don't. That's like 
it's so weird. That's like, I'm the referee for this soccer game, but <laughs> that was a no goal because I said, and now my team wins. Like it just, it makes no sense. So what the next steps for me and my office are right now is to see and reach out to these parties that they've been interacting with and figure out, are you satisfied with how this process has been working? And clearly people aren't, uh, but I need to be able to find that information, turn around and say to the minister, clearly it's not working. You need to fix it. You have the power, ability. You just need the willingness to do it. So it'll be finding more information. Hopefully, uh, the group Nuluyat, the concerned community members, have met with the Inuit organization. So there wasn't anything concrete yet. So we're just looking at what those next steps are going to be. And everything just moved pretty quick and pretty fast with a little bit of un- uncertainty and not very clear again, because the right people aren't covering this who should be to the extent that they need to be. Um, so I've been working really hard to just try and find the full picture and what what can we do from here and how can we make sure that individuals are being heard. Uh, so a lot of uh, what the concerns are is that uh, questions are being pushed, time is being cut out, and basically people aren't getting the answers that they're looking for. And a lot of the other commonality of what I'm hearing is that people don't feel that Bath and Land has been truthful in what they, the information they have been giving on specifically how this will really impact the environment and the wildlife. So it's finding truth, uh, finding facts, and just being able to share that with uh, the public is what we're looking at right now, because it seems Bath and Land hasn't been truthful. And we need to make sure that if there is going to be millions invested into natural resource extraction that we're not seeing such dire consequences that our grandkids aren't going to be able to hunt. Uh, I understand the value of opportunity and economic development, but we don't need to totally demolish our earth while we do that. Thank you so much for giving us some clarity on that because, um, yeah, it's, it's sometimes all I find are tweets, which is like the mode of media that exists for issues like this because there is no coverage which is like you said media is very intentionally funded by certain parties in this country and the narratives that come out also uh, skew that and you touched a little bit on how covid has impacted people's ability to like organize and like the conditions for people getting together or like how convenient it is um right now so i'm, I'm wondering too um how do you do outreach during COVID, which is so difficult and adds another layer of complexity. And uh, you put out a video where you've said uh, politics can look and feel different. And I truly believe, and Ryan as well, when when you said yes to interviewing, we were so excited because we were like, this is one of the only people we believe who is an elected official who like actually is embedded in their community and does actually do politics in a way that's community based or like at least like looks and feels different. It's not just like an MP who like goes to events and waves their hand and like gives a speech maybe and is like sponsored by like, I don't know, a hot dog brand or something like in Mississauga, but <laughs> where, where we're from. But um, uh, how does that work? Like you, you came off of a housing tour and you saw eight communities in three weeks. And that's, that's one difficult physically, but also to see that. And just wondering, like in a huge riding I, that has so many small communities so far apart. Yeah. If you can talk a bit about that. I think uh, as an Indigenous person and as somebody that's always been very hard-headed and 
stubborn. <laughs> um, a lot of my life has been feeling like I need to prove something, not to someone, but just to myself. And that anyone that kind of gave me the idea or impression that I couldn't do it, that was just kind of fuel to the fire of watch me. You want to, that's a, that's a challenge. Bring it on. Um, and that's just very much the stubbornness, I guess I've developed the housing tour. I think anyone with, with an okay brain and a heart that beats normally would feel the impacts of that and would feel some sort of devastation afterwards. Cause that's what I saw. I saw a lot of devastation. I saw a lot of turmoil. I saw a lot of people forced into situations that no human being should be forced into. And I find it's a lot harder when everybody looks like you and comes from a similar history and a similar background. And it's, it's very different when you grow up in a white world, because that's what we live in. We live in a white world where the idea of whatever education, beauty, jobs, economic development, opportunity, it looks white most often. And it, the success of it is white. Oftentimes when we see things that aren't, uh, that aren't white, it, it often isn't labeled as successful. So like as, as successful, you know what I mean? As if it were white. So I think that my accomplishments in my life, I've always taken with a grain of salt, so to speak, because I know if I looked or was somewhere different, I would get so much more hype, so much more recognition for, and on a number of things, if my skin color was different, if I was a man instead of a woman, if I was older instead of younger, like on an immense amount of things, not just for one or two specific things. I think that politics can look, feel, and be different and needs to be because the reality is that the majority of these individuals are 40, 50 year old white men who will never be able to comprehend, will never be able to fathom this notion of having to have a plan depending on a situation simply because of the color of your skin. A white man will never or almost never have to think about and probably almost never has a plan. You know, I'd be interested to approach white men versus brown men and ask them about their experiences with, you know, I think all of us here have a flipping plan for if we get pulled over by a cop, this is exactly how we're going to move and what we're going to do. I don't think very many white people are worried about that. I, when I go into a health center, I have my phone on record all the time because I don't trust that if something happens to me in a health situation or if I'm being denied a service, I say, can you mark that down in my chart and write that I asked for it and you're not giving it to me? And, you know, I always have my phone on in my pocket because if I were to run into a situation, it could be life and death for me. And I have conversations where growing up, my white mom told me as you being an Inuk woman, Who's going to look for you if you go missing besides us? And that's the real conversations that my white mom has had to have with me. So politics that look, feel and can be different. It's almost it, it just really means a true reflection of life that we see around us in Canada. So these individuals that will never have to fathom what it's like to be pulled over by a cop or to be denied health care services or to even, you know, 
applying for a job and getting ready for an interview, bringing your child to a daycare sometimes is completely different because of the color of your skin. And these individuals will almost never have to think about that in their life, would never have to fathom those kinds of issues for their children and the ones that they love. Now, all of a sudden, they're in these positions of very, very high amounts of power without these realizations and not wanting to recognize them too. I think that's a that's a huge issue. Um, so politics can look, feel and be different, but it has to be because it has to reflect Canada and it has to reflect the needs of Canadians and the wants of Canadians. And quite frankly, that's not a bunch of 40, 50 year old white men. We need to move into a, a different space. But that's also the Again, going back to the power of colonization, that institution is not meant for someone that looks like me. It's not meant to accommodate people that come from similar backgrounds of mine that come from, you know, I don't come from an immense amount of wealth and power. I I built my life on my own. My parents taught me how to do that. You know, I look at a bunch of colleagues and man, they don't, you know, that three week housing tour, MPs pay for everything out of their pocket except their flights and get reimbursed. I probably messed up my credit for a really long time. I'm only 27. And I start looking up, you know, how other MPs, they have private, multiple private rental properties they rent out. They got chair positions they were on from before. And I'm just looking at them like, wow. I struggle with (laughs) rent most of the time, month to month. And you wouldn't think that because it doesn't make sense because of my position. But once I explain to you, this is, you know, think about the housing tour for three weeks. Uh, Coral Harbor for one night in a hotel, $350. Now, if I'm traveling with staff and I'm paying that straight up out of pocket and then waiting to get reimbursed, How does that, how does my ability to connect with my constituents, how does that equal out to, again, the downtown Toronto MP who could walk their riding in one half, in half hour? Um, So those kinds of things people don't, aren't fully aware of, but I'm also one of the first MPs to bring this kind of awareness to public light because most of the time we have seen these positions held by a conservative or a liberal, and that's, they're, hands in uh, with their friends and that's why we don't see we haven't seen hunter or leona the past two nunavut mps say hey i need to pay my employees livable wages and this process does not work for me as an mp because they have told party line they have told the status quo of those liberal and conservative quite frankly bs policy and procedure that doesn't work for the representation of the actual people on the ground so i'm also one of the first if not the first, that'll just talk about things of this is how the the House of Commons policy procedure works. This is things that are out of my control. I can't change. These are the things I do want to change and haven't been talked about because people just didn't care before. So there's all these different kinds of things and all these different layers. And I think that's probably another big reason why people see me as look, feel and be different because I'm trying to get you educated and involved and make you more aware so that you understand that this process yes impacts your daily life but this is also how it works so this is how we can try and change it I think that that's something that's super super important so for me it's it's that human connection it's being community connected and it's 
remembering that I'm a part of that too. And just cause I'm in this position, it doesn't, I, I just happen to be in a position where I can use, uh, opportunity and influence and, but I'm still, I'm the sole purpose of me in this job is to try and help. I'm, there's no other reason I'm in this job. If I was in this for money, um, <laughs> I could find a lot of, <laughs> a lot of other things that I could do, uh, that would be a lot less impactful on my soul, mind and body. So I definitely do this cause I want to be here and I want to show people that they can be in these positions too. And there's no set standard for what any position looks like. Cause it can be however you want it. Thank you so much for like sharing so much and being generous and being very honest because we asked Leah Gazan the same question where we were like, oh, Parliament is like made of these multi-generational like white Canadians who have like their dads were lawyers or judges or like owned property and have generational wealth. And a lot of the questions we get submitted are from like young people sometimes who also had the same question for Matthew Green, where it's like, how can a person of like my um, race, which is usually black or indigenous or other POC, and like my family didn't finish high school or something. And how, how can we ever even be in parliament? Because we don't have these like generational wealth. And also just like the idea of like credit um, and, and like being able to expense things and not, and like, I, I, it's, it's a little bit wild and I appreciate you sharing that um, because I don't think people think about that. Like, why does it matter if you're you have multiple properties or your parents were able to teach you how to like even have the etiquette that like white institutions expect from people, which I've never understood in like academia or workspaces I work in. So I appreciate you talking about that. Totally. I mean, look at Trudeau and look at his dad. I mean, think of what that childhood looked like. This man yeah. speaks polit like. I don't know if yeah. he can turn off the politician, but that's just how he was raised. Yeah, and, he was just raised like that. Yeah. And people don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. You know, people don't want to talk about Scott Reed being the chairperson. And that's a family, from what I understand, that's a like a family position. Well, why? Why is that yeah. even okay? And it's multi-generational. Yeah, or the, the ties to the Morneau family and the Midui issue also came out yeah yeah and all the the we stuff and how oh it's unethical that it was unethical for him to drag his family into it in the first place why are we talking about ethics now like all of a sudden like oh don't get me started on that <laughs> but it just it and that's the thing i think in in politics and how we discuss it it is this idea this notion that you come from generational wealth there's a very certain etiquette very certain style how a politician even just is um I mean and I think it's just I I think one of the beautiful things about being in my position is if I don't do anything I can at least set the bar really high and I can at least show people you can hold your leadership and your elected positions to account and you can have those positions filled by people that really care and really want to hold that accountability and that responsibility. I think though, in, in terms of when we look at politics and how we talk about it, I try not to, like, I don't watch any of my clips. I don't watch any of my interviews. I don't, because I'm just a person having these conversations, trying to escalate them and trying to, I'm not trying to better a craft to, 
you know what I mean? Like I am such a polar opposite. I'm such a 180 of being in this for me that I just do everything. I, I do most things. I'm getting better at doing more things for myself, but I do most of my things with the idea of how does this help other people and how can I use this to help other people? Um, I'm a very selfless person. So the last three months has been incredibly difficult to try and you know take time off and say, okay, I need to figure out my own stuff before I can really, really do this job to the best of my ability. And um, I'm really good at it. So, you are uh, taking that time off was something that was yeah. super important. You are. And, and I, we just have like one last question to wrap up, if you don't mind, which is, um, and, and it dovetails off of this, which is in, in January, you put out that video about burnout and mental health. And 2020 has been a difficult year for so many people, but you touched on um, how difficult it has been due to like the community, which we've talked about a bit, like the lack of basic human rights, safe spaces and affordable food. And I guess one thing we wanted to talk about is like the way that colonial Canada past and present has tried to destroy Inuit way of life and, and what that, what that kind of means, um, for other like Canadians who listen to this show, like, like what, what that colonial legacy means and what it's done to people, but also like why they should actually pay attention to like what the feds don't do. Yeah. I think that, I don't know. It's, I think it's always a really interesting question because I've, lived a world uh, I've lived a life where I've and I think as northerners we always have are faced with that kind of expectation of this is how you're going to fit into the south there's no accommodation for us when we are forced to leave the territory to access health services of this is how people are going to be accommodating to you uh, everything is always how are you going to be accommodating to to other people I think in terms of mental health, especially when we discuss that, just in general in Canada, I think there's a huge stigma. But I think in the North, we need to really look at it as whatever makes sense for the individual. Because mental health for me is counseling. I do counseling twice a week. Um, but for like my brother is a full-time hunter trapper. And that's when he feels most connected is when he's out on the land. So for some people, it might be that land and regaining those culture cultural and traditional skills uh, for some people it might be an extremely different emotional healthy outlet and that's the thing that we need to realize is that is all it needs to be we are just we just need to look at and start finding ways for people to help to help people cope healthily with the things that they have experienced that in itself, I think in the territory is a completely different conversation in ways because of already the lack of mental health services available, what mental health means, but also how we deliver it and how we recognize it. And again, going back to my uh, mental health isn't just counseling. It can be out on the land. It can be sports. It can be the point is, is that we're looking for healthy emotional outlets. And I think that that's something that needs to be recognized like that, not just in the North, but throughout the country. Uh, I think in the North as well, there are, and here's the kicker, there are already great programs like Ilisaksivik. There are trained Inuit counselors that understand where people are coming from. The lack of services and infrastructure is so dire in most communities. There are multiple counselors with no space. 
So in turn, what they do is home visits. How can you do a home visit when one in three people live in an overcrowded home in the territory? How can you have those discussions around quality health and men, uh, mental health and quality, uh, quality of life and well-being when an individual is going home to no privacy as a teenager growing up? Maybe they go home to their abuser. So if these cycles are being repeated outside of these mental health services, aren't we just being counterproductive with what we're trying to do? So all of these things need to go hand in hand, the basic human rights, food, shelter, and water. We need to look at intergenerational trauma, how we talk about mental health resources, how we talk about even just basic health resources. I don't believe that any Inuk or anybody in the North should have to leave their homeland to go and have a baby. Like that's in itself is such a, like, could you imagine having to leave your comfort, your community, what you grew up in to go to this foreign place? Like, that's, I find one of the most frustrating things is that we're treated like such a foreign mythical creature. Like, it's almost like we don't even exist anymore or we're a foreign thought. And it's like, we should be Canada's pride you should know so much about us because we are the first people of this country like it astonishes me how much people don't know and are okay continuing not really knowing are okay with and even when they find out you know it's kind of like not really out of sight out of mind not really the pro like you can't see it all the time so it's not really your problem but I think it's just astonishing that tens of thousands of people that share the same culture, traditions, language, clothing, that have all of these similarities can go through all of this, be recognized by a federal institution, and still we have never seen justice for any of it. Any of it. None of the dog slaughters, residential school. Have we seen any kind of... We don't even see basic human rights. Like... To me, that's absolutely astonishing that a group of tens of thousands of people can go through these horrific events, continue to see horrific numbers in suicide, death and violence, and still we somehow are okay with this. <laughs> We're somehow okay with these notions. And even when we do find out, we don't really understand or know what to do do with that information so I I think we need to move into a time of using conversation to create hope and awareness because we're out of gas we've been saying these things for decades that we need help and it's time for the federal government to step up or somebody maybe it doesn't need to be the feds I don't know maybe we're relying on the wrong people Thank you. Thank you so much for giving us your time and sharing so much, but also um, speaking to things like grasping issues at the roots yeah. of the issues and not just like having policy wonk speak. Yeah. Could you imagine if I did that? If I was like, <laughs> I, I can't, Medicare. I, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. But I also grew up very differently than a lot of the. But it's also just, it's not the reality of my constituency. If it was the reality of my constituency, that's definitely what I would be doing. Uh, but it's, it's not. And I don't, that would be so boring. Could you imagine like <laughs> representing people, not even talking about what they actually need? Yeah. 
Like I, yeah. I wouldn't be able to do my job. Well, some people are quite used to that as representatives, <laughs> but yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you let the listeners know where they can find you and where they can follow you to stay up to date on your work and support? Absolutely. I have basically everything under Mumilak or Mumilak or Moments with Mumilak. I have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, website, podcasts. Yeah, I think that's about it. But primarily use um, social media, Facebook, Twitter and yeah, those two. And of course, there's always on the website, you can subscribe to the email list and there's all different ways to contact us. So social media first, but if you Google my last name, it's really easy to find me. Yeah. And we will link those. We'll link everything yeah. in the show notes. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you both. Hey, everyone. It's Johnny, the main editor and Nashua's occasional co-producer for the pod. To cap off this episode, we thought it'd be appropriate to highlight an Inuit artist that we think is underappreciated. So the song you're about to hear is by the wonderful Becky Hahn, and it's called Six More Pat. In her own words, it's a glimpse into her childhood when she had to be home by 6pm for supper. So yeah, hope you guys enjoy, and thanks for listening.
These episodes take a small team. Solo episodes are hosted by me, Ashwalina Khan. American political episodes are co-hosted by Dawson Kimian. Canadian political episodes are co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande. Music and art for Habibti Please is done by Post America and Johnny Zapras. Editing is done by Johnny Zapras. Production assistance by Raymond Hanano and Dawson Kimian and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibti Please. And you can find us on Twitter at Habibti Please with a B. This takes a bit of money and your support helps us carry on the show and continue producing some unique content. So it's much appreciated. Yalla, let's grab some tea and shisha. Shisha.